Man, wasn't that pretty? Beautiful music. That's very kind. Take your Bibles, if you would, and uh, with all that flowing in your hearts, look with me at Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. It's true that uh, for many of us, we have prayed for those in our family that don't know the Lord. We've prayed for unbelievers, and uh, when you come to Christ and you begin to experience the transformed mind that God produces, you begin to see a softness in your heart, and you actually can choose righteousness rather than sin, you begin to see your life changing, and not only on the outside because you want to be around God's people and, and not live the way that you used to live in the world, but also on the inside and primarily as the root of these new changes. You start to think different. You start to have, as Todd said earlier, inclinations that are different. But as you're becoming familiar as a believer with the things that God produces in the believer, you start to become burdened for people that don't yet know him, people around you, people in your sphere of influence, particularly people that you know and love and and you've tried to talk about the deep love of Christ, you've tried to share that with them and they continue to reject. And so you come to a text like Luke 8 where Jesus is speaking to the disciples about the reality of entrance into the kingdom and what it takes to enter the kingdom and he gives it to them in parables because he is going to explain the meaning strictly to them and keep it from others. As a just act of punishment, there were those in Israel who just rejected his authority. They rejected Christ's authority. They rejected who he was. They even said, hey, this power to cast out demons, you do that because you're under the prince of demons, Satan himself. Satan has filled your heart, they said, of Jesus. And so as an act of justice on God's part in his divine sovereignty, he through the ministry of his son in his preaching, began to hide the truth, the saving truth that would soften the hearts of the Israel, the nation of Israel and her leaders for rejecting their Messiah. You say, does God actually do that? Yes, he does. The scriptures teach that he does it. In fact, all the way back when Isaiah was being commissioned, Isaiah chapter six, it says there when he said, Here am I, Lord, send me. God said, I am going to send you, and I'm going to send you for a specific period of time to speak to a people over and over and over again the great saving gospel, and they're not going to believe because I am going to keep it from them. I'm not going to soften their heart. I'm not going to convict them of their sin. They're going to keep hearing, but they're going to be dull. They're going to keep seeing, but they're going to be blind. And then Isaiah says, how long will you do that? I mean, Isaiah knew. He knew the implications that if there was some way that God would withhold for a time his softening mercies, just for a time, you have to ask that question, how long, Lord? Because if you don't do it, then how's it going to be done? How's it going to happen? And of course, God said, just for a time. Just as a just act of holding people from the truth who have so long heard it and rejected it over and over and over again. So for the stubborn, for the hard-packed, for the person who's like the hard ground upon which the seed fell, there may be a season. Like Israel in Jesus' day, 
where he starts speaking in parables. He keeps the truth from them. He hides it from them. I know we sometimes have a, a real sentimentalistic and, and somewhat shallow and superficial view of gospel ministry at times, and we think that, that uh, God never would do anything like that, but it's clear in Scripture that he does at times, judiciously and righteously. And since none of us deserve salvation, we all admit that, no one's worthy of it, then let's just admit right up front, God doesn't have to save anyone, does he? Sometimes people say, well, I don't like the idea that God is sovereign in salvation. Well, I'm asking you, does anybody deserve salvation? Does anybody deserve it? Come on, class. Do you, do you believe that? I mean, really grasp and admit and confess that no sinner ever warrants or deserves redemption and God's mercy. We all say, absolutely. Well, then if God saves some and for his just perfect purposes as an, as an act of punishment to the hardened keeps them from the truth, why is he suddenly unjust? If nobody deserves it, then what should blow our minds, what should cause our eyes to open wide and our hearts to absolutely weep is that he saves anyone, ever. And so when you come to Luke 8 and you see soils, you start to get worried. You remember we saw in verse 12 that there was soil and the seed fell upon this hard soil. It was the road And Jesus explained to his disciples that the seed falls by the road, so they hear it, they hear the truth of the gospel, and then the devil comes and takes it away, you know, like the analogy of a bird who comes and snatches a seed off the hard ground. It's hard-packed. It's a well-worn life of sin. It's a stubbornness. It's a rebellion. And God, for just purposes, does not make that soil softer. You start to get worried and you start to pray for people you love. Lord, don't let them hard pack that soil of their heart down so tight that it won't be softened and that you, by your mercy, won't do it. Don't let that happen, Lord. Verse 13, those on the rocky soil where the seed fell, they are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy, but they have no firm root. They believe for a while, and then temptation makes them fall away. What is this? You start to worry about family members and friends and loved ones who have rocks all around in the soil of their heart, and they hear the gospel, and they feel euphoric, and maybe this is going to be a better way to live, and I'm tired of living the guilty life, and they feel forgiven, and then... Convictions don't go down deep. Why? Because personal reputation is going to cost them. You have to be embarrassed to be associated with Jesus' people. So the convictions don't go down deep. And so, because it's rocky soil, they don't have the necessary softening and no rocks to sort of make the roots grow deep. So it's a superficial reaction to the gospel. Verse 14, then the seed which falls among the thorns, these are the ones who've heard and as they go on their way, they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and they bring no fruit to maturity and you start to worry again. Lord, please don't let someone be like that. Please don't let someone be so in love with comforts of this life that they can't hear. The seed can't be planted The gospel can't take root. So you have a sin-hardened heart. We start to pray for those people. Lord, don't let it become such a hard-packed life of sin that the gospel never gets through. 
And then you have the superficial heart. Lord, please remove the rocks out of people's heart and life so that the roots go down deep and they actually become convinced by faith that Jesus is Lord and they live for him regardless of reputational cost. And Lord, don't let anybody be a self-comforting heart where they love the pleasures and wealth and riches and things of this life. Don't let them be like that because those are weeds that choke out any real root. But I'll tell you this, if this passage were what we deserve, then there'd be no fourth soil. There'd just be the three, and then punishment. If this passage were a parable about what we deserve and only what we deserve, and if God were not the kind of God that he is, and that if he never moved to soften soil, there'd be only three soils, there wouldn't be a fourth soil. So when you come to this text, it is absolutely staggering that there's a fourth soil. And notice verse 15, there's a good kind of soil. Man, I'm glad there's good soil. Because as we're gonna see in a moment, God has to soften it. He has to, You, you can't soften it on your own. Verse 15, the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and they hold it fast, and they bear fruit with perseverance. By analogy, back in verse 8, Jesus said it grew up and it produced a crop a hundred times as great. Guaranteed fruit, real fruit, fruit that is a treasure to a family and a heritage, fruit that makes a real difference, fruit, the roots of which go down deep, we call this the submissive heart. Notice this is the seed that falls on soil where the word is received in an honest and good heart. These are two words stuck together to simply mean that it is prepared for a seed It is genuine soil that has what it takes to grow a seed. It has been tilled. It has been cultivated. And therefore, it's good. It will produce fruit. And it holds the seed fast. And the roots go down deep. Everything opposite the other three kinds of soil. I mean, it's it's a strange contrast, isn't it? You remember verse 11 said that the seed is the word of God? So here it is. Here's the picture. The seed goes out. And you've got the hard-packed, uncultivated ground, and it's no good to grow anything. And unless God softens it, that seed sits on that hard ground. It doesn't go down in. There's no way for, it to, for the soil to receive it. It's hard-packed life of patterned sin and rebellion that is against God. It is for self. It's self-worship. Whether it's religious or irreligious, it is a hard-packed life of resistance to God and the seed falls and then the world and the flesh and the devil make sure that that seed can't, can't stay there long enough for any softening to happen and it just comes and snatches the gospel away, keeps people away from hearing it, keeps them blind, keeps them in cultures that are lost in all kinds of dominating false religion and idol worship and bondage. And even in this culture, it keeps people lost in immorality and bondage to wickedness and resentment of Christianity and resentment of anything holy. 
You see that in our culture. And then you have the ground full of rocks where roots remain shallow. And then you're confronted with soil that's all choked up with with the nutrient-stealing weeds that come in and, and get all over it. But then you have this soft soil with no rocks. Finally, there's no non-bearing shrub that's going to uproot it. All of those have been removed. And God has prepared this soil by, by making the furrows and turning up the soil and putting in the essential nutrients and minerals and then nurturing the seed while the soil has been amalgamated and he provides the water and the sunlight of his power and his grace and fruit is produced. There you have it. Good soil. If you're here today and you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and you came to him by repentance and faith, from the human perspective, it, it, it looks one way to you, to all of us. There you were going along in your blindness and unbelief and somehow circumstances and messages from people and prayers from faithful saints and a relationship here or a trial there or a crisis over here or destitution over here, whatever happened, all of those circumstances are fresh in your mind as the very things that collectively brought you to begin to consider a change. And they begin to weigh down on you and burden your life. And maybe, not too far into that process, you began to point the fingers at yourself. And maybe a friend came along and said, you know, the troubles in your life, you're culpable for them. You're guilty. It's your fault. And maybe you said, why? And they said, because you don't know God. You don't know the Lord. You don't have power in your life. You're driven by appetites and the world and cravings and you have no power over sin. You haven't been renewed. Your soul hasn't been transformed. You belong to Satan. You're of your father, the devil. He controls your life. And then when you heard that, maybe you resisted it at first, but slowly the circumstances of your life, the conviction of your heart, that weighing down of guilt began to work on you. What is that? That's God drawing you. He's working nutrients into the soil of your hard-packed heart. And then maybe it was someone else who came to you and said, you know, I prayed for you. And maybe you broke down at that moment in tears and just said, thank you for praying for me. I'm a mess. And someone, at the right moment, when God had prepared the soil just right, put enough nutrients and enough water and enough readiness, the seed of the gospel came and it fell on a good and honest heart. Genuine, I confess that I'm needy and lost. Good in the sense that God had prepared it to receive the gospel truth by faith. And so from the human perspective, all that went on and you heard of Christ and you said, yes, I am guilty. Yes, I am the sinner. I need Christ. And you turned to him hearing the word repentance, even if you had to ask what it meant. What is repentance? It means you confess that you are guilty. It's all you. It's not your environment. It's not your parents. It's not the way you were treated. It's not your bad circumstances. It's not the way you grew up. It's not somebody else's, you know, way that they mistreated you. It's not the crisis in your life. It's not even the bad circumstances and bad luck of a series of circumstances in your life. 
It's you, all you. And in that moment, you admitted it. That was an honest heart, a good heart. And they said to you, believe in Jesus Christ. Why? Because there he showed God's love, the saving love of God on the cross. He, as the perfect man who did not deserve guilt, shed his blood unto death as a substitute for sinners so that God's wrath would be assuaged. God's wrath would be quieted. God's wrath against sin would be taken care of and taken out of the way. And you believed it. You said, yes, that's the Savior I need. I believe him by faith. And that same gospel said that Jesus is Lord, and you said, yes, he is Lord. Absolutely. And from the human perspective, you embraced Christ as your master and Lord and Savior from your sin. From the human perspective, that's what happened. But from the divine perspective, you didn't till your own soil. You didn't put in the nutrients. You didn't make it honest or good. That came by a drawing of the grace of God. Now, I'll just sort of rehearse a little bit of this for you. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're just going to go back over gospel basics. I'm so glad there's good soil. But there's nothing I can do to make the soil good. And when I pray for lost family members and lost children and lost grandchildren and lost co-workers, when I pray for them, I have to pray, Lord, you make the soil good. Because I cannot. God has to make the soil good. Why? Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is to those who are dying foolishness. Look, apart from Christ, we're all dying. Apart from the grace of God, we're all dying. Cross is foolishness. How many times did you hear the gospel before you came to Christ and you didn't believe it? Maybe some of you heard it from parents and grandparents for years. I grew up, my folks were saved when I was seven years old. I heard the gospel all the rest of my years, the teen years. To me, I just pretended it. But it was really foolishness to me, utterly. I loved my friends, I was a rocky soil, and I had weeds in the soil, and there were some hard pack parts. I was all three soils. Any of you claim all three soils? You better be lifting your hand. There's some of that in all of us. It was foolishness to me. Look at chapter 2, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 2, verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually apprehended. Look over at Romans 8, one book previous to 1 Corinthians. Romans chapter 8. As unbelievers, we have our minds set on the flesh. Verse seven, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to God's law. It's not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why? Because as Romans one says, we look at the creation around us and instinctively, by being God's creatures made in his image, we know by reasonableness that he is greater than us, wiser than us, more powerful than us, and we are accountable to him. You know that by nature, Romans 1. But you don't acknowledge him as God or give him thanks. You worship the creature rather than the creator. It doesn't matter what I know by nature. I just suppress the truth that I am accountable to God, and I say I'm not accountable to God. I don't care. 
I'm going to live my life and eat, 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 drink, and be merry. And then when I die, I'm either going to go out of existence or I'm going to go to a party with a bunch of my friends. And we won't be religious because we don't like that stuff. And that's what you do. You convince yourself of that. Because we have a mindset against God by nature. Look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I know these things are familiar to most of you, but just to remind you. So you can understand how there came to be good soil. Ephesians 2. I know this verse in verse 1 might be hard to understand because it's not straightforward, but listen to it. You were dead in your sins. Is that clear enough? How dead is dead? You're dead. Look at, the, look at verse 3. Among them, among the others who lived according to the prince of the power of the air, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Even if you were a religious person and fairly moral, that's exactly what you were doing is what's said right here. They're your lusts. It's your mind. It's your worship of yourself. It's your religious morality. It's your own self. And you were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Every human being is a child of wrath by nature. You can't get away from it. You're born with it. The only way you can get away from it is not to be human. Because Adam and Eve were human, and they produced corruption by their sin, and every human being comes from their loins. You're born with a corrupt nature. That's the way it is. So when the Bible refers to Christians, or or to unbelievers rather, non-Christians, it refers to them as people dead by nature and unable, and it's impossible. They cannot, on their own, do it. There's nothing moral inside of you that's intrinsic to yourself that would initiate good soil. Nothing. But when God describes the Christian, he describes him from two angles. One, he calls a Christian to, uh, an unbeliever to repentance. He called you to repentance. He called you to believe, and you were convicted of your sin. God, uh, the, the soil got soft. Your heart softened to it. You got convicted. You reached out in faith. You saw Christ. You repented. And with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your will, you believed in Jesus, and you were saved. And at that point, the Spirit of God enters into you, and he begins to transform you from the inside out. You have new inclinations, new power over sin. It's not perfect. It will be perfect one day, but now you have a war going on inside of you, the Spirit of God warring against those old desires and beginning to subdue them by faith. There you have, from the human perspective, what happened to you in salvation. But from the divine perspective, it is true that God had to sovereignly soften the soil and make it good. He had to make it good. Otherwise, there is no good soil. God makes it good. God draws the sinner. God convicts of sin. God opens eyes. God calls the sinner to faith. God moves upon the dead heart and the will. God grants faith and repentance savingly. He's the one that forgives and indwells with his spirit. He seals the believer for eternity with the presence of Christ by his spirit. He sustains and strengthens faith, and he's the one that brings us all the way to glory. It's very, very clear that when Jesus gives this fourth soil, it should have put humility in the hearts of those who were listening. So thankful that there's good soil. Surely they weren't sitting there saying, yep, yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah, those other three soils, that's not me. I was enough to be good soil. Now Jesus is calling men to be urgent and careful and thoughtful and repentant. 
He even places their unbelief at their feet. They are culpable because they are sinners by nature. But God must make the soil good. Now, I know that makes you uncomfortable because you're saying, well, if God is sovereign, then how is man responsible when you get into all those questions? But listen, I can prove to you that no matter what tradition you grew up in, no matter what tradition you, you believe, no matter what you've been taught about systematic theology and all those tensions, let's just admit right now that they are tense because there's a paradox. At Grace Emmanuel Bible Church, we always talk about the sovereignty of God to make the soil good and man's call to believe and his responsibility for rebelling. We always place those side by side because the Bible places them side by side without apology. Just puts them there side by side without apologizing for them. So we don't apologize for them. But I can demonstrate that even if you grew up with a tradition that said, ah, I'm not really sure and I don't think about that and you soften this over here and you redefine this over here, even if that's true, you already believe that God is sovereign over the soil. You already believe that. Do you know how we know that? Number one, you pray, don't you? So if God isn't sovereign, I mean absolutely sovereign over everything, then why do you pray? You pray that he sort of gets alongside your own sovereignty and ability? No, you pray because you're dependent. You already know you're dependent. As a Christian, you pray because you believe in God's absolute control of all things. And prayer is an acknowledgement of that truth. We ask God because we are utterly dependent. And even when he answers a prayer, we thank him in gratitude because he is the one that had to make whatever happened, happen. We view him as totally sovereign and we dependently pray as proof of it. Furthermore, we already believe he's sovereign in salvation because it doesn't matter what your tradition taught you, you do not thank yourself for your salvation. Do you? You didn't say, Lord, I'm so glad you provided provision on the cross, and I am so blessed to know me because I chose to save myself. I, aren't I something? In fact, let's thank each other, God. I'll thank you for Jesus. You thank me for being good enough to be good soil. You don't say that. You already admit that it was God that had to move. I'll tell you something else. You already believe that God is sovereign in salvation because you have loved ones you're praying for. And I'm asking you, if you don't believe God is sovereign and has to make the soil good, why do you pray? Why do you say, Lord, save them? I mean, couldn't the Lord essentially say back to you, why are you asking me? I can't do anything. I'm just throwing seed. No. Look, from the human perspective, of course, of course man is called to believe. From the divine perspective, God makes the soil good by tilling it and moving upon it and being gracious. You say, would God do that? Yes. And he explains that about himself. Listen, what, what thrills your heart is what was sung in the song earlier. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Listen, God is by nature wanting to save sinners, loves to save sinners, rejoices to save sinners, moves in the direction of sinners. By nature, it's what he's like. It's how he's made. It's how he is by his character. It's the expression of his nature and his perfections to save, to love, to reach out. Now, go back to the question I asked you earlier. Does anyone deserve salvation? No. So therefore, 
the third soil could be the end of it. That's it. After the third soil comes punishment. And for a season, sometimes, depending on what men were doing to harden their own hearts, God did sometimes hide the truth from some of them. And he still, to this day, at times, will just leave someone to their rebellion as a judgment. Now, beloved, listen. If no one deserves it, how did your soil get to be good? If it's nothing in you, then it must be in the character of God. It must be part of his character. So what did Moses do when he wanted to know what God will do with a disobedient people? Moses, Moses led the people of Israel, two million of them, out of bondage. Can you imagine being the leader of two million people like that? They were stubborn. They'd seen miracles like you cannot even fathom. And they still complained, just complaining against God. It's not good enough. It's never good enough. Who are you? Are we secure? Are we going to be secure? Will you love us in the end? And they went on and on and on. And then they taught their children to complain against God, and their children went into unbelief, and their children apostatized and rejected God outright. God's own chosen nation had generations who rejected him outright. Moses saw that. So he goes to God and he says, I need help. I need to know what kind of a God you are. Because if human hearts are like this, that we could hear of your love and your grace and your deliverance and still be hardened against you, I need to know what kind of God you are because the only way that salvation's ever gonna come is if it's part of your nature. And so he said to God, show me your character. Show me your glory. Show me your perfections. And God said, I will. I'll just show you the backside of it. And I'll hide you under this rock. And I'm gonna pass by. You can read it in Deuteronomy 34. He passed by Moses with the backside of his presence. God is spirit, so he doesn't have a physical side, but he describes it that way so we can sort of see the imagery. He passed his glory by Moses while Moses was in the cleft of the rock, hidden so he wouldn't die because you can't look directly at God as a sinner and live without a covering of some perfect righteousness and holiness. But you can't look at the perfection of God and live. You must be perfect and holy through and through or you, you will die because his holiness would kill you. So he hid Moses in the rock, and as he passed by, he told Moses what his character is like. And do you know what he didn't say right out of the bat, right out of the gate? I will harden, I will punish. You don't deserve it. No one deserves it. All I've ever done is reached out, and all you've ever done is rejected, so I've got salvation for nobody. He didn't say that. Even though he's holy, and even though no sinner deserves salvation, do you know what he said of himself? I am compassionate and gracious and merciful and my love is deep and I will forgive iniquities in abundance for generations. How did he prove that? Israel, generation after generation, experienced what God told Isaiah he would do. 
Isaiah, I'm keeping this generation from the truth, but there is a remnant within there that I'm going to save. I'm always going to save a holy remnant. I'm always going to keep saving. I'm always going to save the ne- in the next generation. I'm always going to rescue sinners out of the next generation. And I'm going to do that abundantly, and the, he did it abundantly, and he kept saying, I'm going to send a Messiah, and that Messiah is going to die for sinners, and then the, the, the gospel is going to spread to the Gentile world, and it's going to cover the globe All cultures, all nations, all peoples, I am going to forgive iniquities in all of the globe. Fill my earth with my glory. So he told it to Moses. He told it to Isaiah. Every generation in between, he told it to the disciples through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus then went to die, and he commissioned the disciples. They went out, and they told it. And what what do they keep saying? God is making good soil out of bad. God is saving and producing good soil out of bad. And you know, the Old Testament terminology from the very beginning that describes that compassion of God was carried through the generations of the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. Same terminology that we get words in the Old Testament of our English Bible like loving kindness. You like that word loving kindness? Isn't that such a tender word? It's two words in the English, right? Love and kindness. But it's put together to describe that Old Testament Hebrew word group for faithful, undying, devoted love. God describes himself as a forgiver, as a healer, as compassionate and gracious. Now, he went on to say to Moses, I will by no means clear a guilty person So if a person continues to harden against me, I will justly leave them in it and leave them to it. You say, but doesn't God have to soften? Yes. You say, well, I don't understand how those two could coexist. Neither do I, frankly. But they do. And so he keeps calling. All who are weary, come to me. And all who come to me, I won't cast out. But then he says, on the other hand, in John 6, 44, No one comes to me except the Father draws him. What is God doing in the drawing? He's tilling the soil. By the time you get to the New Testament, the word charis for the word grace is used 155 times, 100 of them by Paul himself. He loved the word. God is compassionate. Be compassionate like God is compassionate. Lavish forgiving grace on people like Jesus Christ has lavished forgiving grace on you. It is God's favor The Old Testament concept was he stooped down. It's the Hebrew word group for the word Hanan and that word, those associated words. And it means to stoop down in mercy and favor to someone who has no hope. That's what he does. That's what his nature's like. Yes, Jesus said he's hiding the truth from some. Yes. As a judicious punishment. Why? Because he showed them his power and they said that's satanic power. Man, you want to hard pack the ground of your heart and you listen to a sermon from the word of God or you listen to the prayers and the faithful gospel presentation of a friend and you harden against it and say that it's nothing and it's foolishness, I guarantee you're treading that soil of your heart down hard. Don't do that. Listen. Plead with God to soften and to till in the nutrients that make your soil soft. You're born without the ability to do it on your own. 
From the human perspective, you're called to repent. From the divine perspective, he must draw you. And as we heard Dan say earlier, Ephesians chapter 1 says you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Here's the glorious thought. That Jerry Rag, God knew when I would be born, he knew that I would reject the gospel, even though my father shared it with me over and over again. He knew that I'd be stubborn. He knew that I would trample it. He knew I'd let weeds choke it out. He knew I'd keep rocks in the soil uh, because I was afraid of reputation. And so even though I heard the gospel and would go to church and pretend, so I even had the religious hypocrisy added in there, he knew that there would come a moment when he would work into the soil through the prayers and faithful gospel presentation and the guilt of my own sin and the destruction of my own life, he would be working in the nutrients to make it soft. And he knew there would come a moment when having heard all that truth, he would then open my eyes by his stooping down in grace and compassion to say, I'm gonna forgive this pathetic, undeserving sinner. He did that. From the human perspective, I saw it, felt it, repented, believed. I didn't have a zap, no lightning bolts. But inside, there began to be a new inclination produced by the grace of God. And listen, beloved, when I found out that all those years of rejection were ordained by God until such a time when he supernaturally called me to light out of darkness. And that he knew that that lifetime of rejection would result in belief one day, soft, good soil. How did he know that? Because as Ephesians 1 says, he set his love upon me before he created the world. He set his love on me by name. He set his love on you by name. How could he not be a saving God? When by nature he already knows what mankind is going to do. He already ordains ultimately the entire process from start to finish. And he ordains his expression of love towards sinners to forgive them. And then he manifests and proves that love by his own son. He sends his own son who comes into the world as one of us, yet without sin, and sends him to a cross to express his desire to forgive me. So I'm not satisfied with three soils. You say, well, I've prayed for my relative a long time. God has to soften the soil, but he hasn't softened it. Are they still alive? Are they still breathing? Look, you're not supposed to figure all this out by saying, oh, who's chosen, who's not. You're not supposed to figure all that out. Just let the Bible speak. You're chosen before the foundation of the world if you're in Christ. At a specific point in time in history, that depravity is manifesting self, and yet you're called. And prior to being called, God was drawing you and convicting you and bringing you to the place where you would hear the gospel and you would see Christ because he would open your blind eyes, he'd make the soil good. And the seed would go in and the spirit would come into your life and begin to produce new desires and start to wage war against the old fleshly ones. And you would now have power to see Christ rightly and see your old sin. And you might be driven back into it and and drifting back into it, but you'd come back out of it because you want this new relationship with Christ because inside of you, he's changing you. He's producing change. And listen, if God by nature loves to do that, And you've got someone in your life that doesn't know the Lord. Grandparents praying for your grandchildren. Parents praying for your children. 
a spouse playing, praying for that loved one who's the partner of your life. Maybe you're a young person praying for your parents. Or it's a coworker or a longtime best friend. We all have them, don't we? And when you pray for them, don't focus on the three soils as if God's some sort of ogre. You say, but he could harden them and never soften them. That's true, and he'd never be unrighteous in it. Why? Because none of us deserve it. Why is he somehow unfair and unrighteous if he expresses mercy toward you and leaves others? He's not unfair for that. The fact that you got saved is unfair to his holiness and his glory if it weren't for Christ. Amen? So we just let the tension live and focus on the good soil, that there is good soil, and that God wants to produce softness. How does he do it? You keep speaking. How shall they hear without a proclaimer? Faith comes by what? Hearing. I mean, tell people. Live it. Tell it. Pray for them. Ask God to soften the soil. If they're still breathing, you know they could be in his sovereign purposes. I treat everyone as elect until they die and prove otherwise in their unbelief. I don't wonder who's elect and who's not, who's chosen and who's not. And I never question God's righteousness in such things because if there is good soil at all, it stuns me. I'm shocked that there's a fourth soil here. I'm shocked. I'm shocked that God would save anyone. But he loves to save. So when Jesus tells this to the disciples and then two chapters later sends them out, that's what they're going with. They're set out with the knowledge that there are appointed recipients of the love of God to soften the soil of their heart and make it good. And they're just to sow seed, the seed of the word of God, and pray that God would make that soil soft. And you know what? God loves to soften soil. He loves it. You say, well, I've kind of seen God as a, an ogre, and I've become cynical because he hasn't saved the one I've prayed for. Listen, are you saved? Did you deserve it? and yet God is using you to pray for that person, and they're still breathing? Why be cynical about that? The fact that you're saved and you can pray at all is a mercy. A mercy. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. How did God prove he was a compassionate and gracious God and wants to save? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. You and I were saved by God himself solving our sin problem. Coming under the wrath that we deserve so that we might have a seed produce fruit in the soil of our sinful hearts. Don't focus on the other three. Rejoice that there's good soil and ask God to soften it. Sow the seed. Pray for your loved ones. Seek the Lord. Be persistent. Live it out in front of them. Thank God for his righteousness. Thank him for his holiness. When God keeps the truth from someone and they just look at you with a blank stare, thank the Lord for his perfect timing. And yet thank the Lord that you didn't always have a blank stare in your own life. That somehow God softened your blindness and opened your eyes. That's how you approach this. That's what his disciples went out to do. 
Don't worry. God is righteous. You're not being misdealt a hand that you can't deal with. God is sovereign. If he set his love on you before the foundation of the world, don't you think he knows exactly what he's doing? If he waited this long in human history after he created the world to get to you and bring you through a season of rebellion and rejecting the gospel and then soften your heart and save you and promises to get you to glory, doesn't, don't you think he can accomplish his grand purposes in, in saving others? Don't forget, don't make God out to be other than he is. He's a saving God, and he wants to soften soil. So pray for that. And thank him that there's even a fourth soil at all. Amen? Father, thank you for the way that you have spoken in your word. No one comes except you draw them, and yet men don't come because of their own unbelief. It is true we're unbelievers by nature. It is true that there's nothing morally in us that would make us believe. We're dead. But you, because of the great love with which you loved us, made us alive together with Christ. You made our soil good and you alone deserve the glory. It is of you that we are in Christ Jesus so that no man will boast. We don't dare presume to come to you and question your purposes. We just know you're a saving God and you, you love to soften soil. So, Lord, with regard to those we're praying for, do it for your glory's sake. Soften them and help our tiny, fearful hearts to believe you and trust you for the timing. And even those who who are unbelievers to the bitter end and they just refuse. May we always exonerate your righteousness and your character because there have been generations whom you have justly left in their rebellion. And it humbles us because it makes us become gripped that you could have left us in our rebellion and it would have been right and just How did we end up with good soil? Because you're a God who loves to save sinners who don't deserve it. And so may we pray for fervently and speak fervently the truth to those who, for those who yet have to be softened. And Lord, we ask you to put yourself on display. Marvel us with your love, not for our sakes, but for your glory's sake. Humble us with this great parable. We pray it in Jesus' name, our great Savior. Amen.